So this session is going to be about happiness. But before we talk about happiness for a second, uh, we should talk about hygge. And Mike has come to fame as an author uh, as a result of his first book, The Little Book of Hygge. Now, you'll all be saying two or three words in Danish. Uh, I can guarantee you a little better than I am by the end of this uh, hour. We're going to have an hour talking with Mike. The main reason we're here to chat this morning is about lukke, okay, happiness. So what gives Mike the credibility to talk about happiness? Well, I think there's three reasons. The first of which is he's a Dane. So he's from Denmark, for those children in the room. And if you look at the statistics, the Danes are amongst the happiest uh, population in the world. Now, does that mean that everybody in Denmark is happy all the time? Do people in Denmark have a bad day? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit and try and get Mike to describe uh, what it's like living in, in Denmark. The second reason is that Mike has got a cool job title. Not only has a cool name, uh, but he has a cool job title. So his day-to-day job, he's the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute based in Copenhagen, right? So based in Denmark. So what a great thing to do. Go to work every day and with his team, research happiness and talk about happiness. Go on a journey around the world and understand what different cultures perceive as happy, what drives happiness. So we'll get to talk about that. And the third and probably the most important reason for this literature festival as to why Uh, Mike is so well equipped to talk about happiness. He's he's the author of of this great book, you know, The Little Book of Lukke. There you go, that's the second Danish word today. And so he has compiled all of his knowledge as a a Dane, all of his research in his day-to-day job, and he's translated it into words. And it's more than just words, there's great pictures in here too. So Mike has put down all of this knowledge around happiness into a great book. So without further ado, let's maximize our time and invite Mike on stage with a a huge round of applause. So, welcome to Dubai. Thank you. Just to start out with a disclaimer regarding my name, my, I think my dad and my nephew actually has cooler names. Uh, my dad is called Wolf Viking, and I have, a, I have a small nephew called Max Viking. And he really needs to grow up tall and wide. <laughs> yeah, you're setting your kid up for, 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 for high ambitions if it's Max Viking, yeah. So, welcome back to Dubai. You've been, here, you. been here before. Yes. I come here at least once a year. Uh, as I'm sure a lot of you know, there is a Minister of State for Happiness in Dubai, and she brings together happiness experts from, from all over the world. I was here uh, three weeks ago for, for that event, uh, the Global Dialogue for Happiness. Uh, I like to see it as it uh, for like our Woodstock uh, of, of happiness, so, so I come here for that. Yeah, that's good. Well, uh, we might even get some rain today. You never know. Yeah. You, might be, you might be lucky. It makes us happy when we see rain. So we're welcoming Mike, and I think what we're, I want to just make sure, first off, we've got a, a couple of minutes to just talk about making sure that we're saying things the right way. So mm-hmm. it is Luca. It is Luca. Okay. We might have to have a group, uh, group <laughs> test of, uh, of the audience, okay? So I want you guys to be uh, practicing it. And before we talk about Luca, I just wanted to talk briefly about the other Danish word, Hygge. Yes. Is that right? It is, it is. Okay, guys, get practicing. There will be a test, okay? <laughs> so can we just briefly for a second talk about uh, Hygge and what Hygge sure. means? So I didn't explain that to the audience. Yeah, so I think Hygge is perhaps best explained with... Uh, an anecdote of, of when I experienced a, a hyggely time, which was in, uh, in Sweden a few years ago. I was up there with, with a group of friends in a December, and we had been out hiking during the day and came back in the cabin in the afternoon when the sun was setting. And uh, we were tired, uh, so we, we had prepared a stew. We put that on the, on the stove and, and, and made it boil, and we lit up. There was a fireplace in the cabin. We lit that up. So we just 
sitting back, relaxing, enjoying each other's uh, silent company, and you can hear the fire in the fireplace, you could hear the, the stew boiling. And then one of my friends said, could this be any more hygge And then one of the girls said, yes, if there was a storm outside. Because hygge is also this feeling of being sheltered from the outside. But it's key part of Danish culture. It's, it's, it's sort of ingrained in our DNA, but it's these situations where we experience feeling relaxed, feeling a sense of togetherness, feeling grateful, feeling secure, and perhaps are enjoying some simple pleasures. That's what uh, hygge is, and obviously that's not a Danish thing. Uh, that's a global thing, that, that people find pleasure in those things. I think what was uniquely Danish that it was that we, we had a word that described that situation, but of course it, it happens everywhere. And a lot of readers have been writing me afterwards saying, I've been having hygge all my life. I just didn't know there was a word for it. And I think that that's, that's a wonderful thing to hear also for an author, that it, it shows the power of language. It shows that our language shapes our perception of the world and sometimes also our behavior in it. Well, you mentioned togetherness there, and in a second we'll talk about togetherness. That's one of the main themes in the, the little book of uh, Luca. But before we go on to it, this is a literature festival, and obviously you've just authored uh, well, the, the, the first book, which was hugely successful. And how did that affect your happiness? Is that a, a real highs, or were there challenges as well in, in becoming an author for the first time? The net effect is definitely positive. I mean, it's been wonderful to see all the positive reactions I've received from letters, I mean, that's something that every author dreams of. We receive letters on a daily basis uh, from people around the world saying thank you. So, of course, there's a huge sense of, of joy in that. And also what I really enjoyed, actually, with, with both books is with all the conversations I've had with, with people like you, with, with readers, with, with journalists, we, we might start out with talking about the candles and talking about sort of cute things like the relaxation moments and the cake and everything. But very quickly, the conversation actually moves on to talking about sort of more substantial matters like how do we design good conditions for good lives? What kind of policies are needed? How do we create countries and cities and societies that are good for people in which to flourish? And I think that's a great thing. So in, in that sense, it's been like a positive Trojan horse a Trojan horse with candles and pillows, but you know, a conversation starter into more serious matters. Well, that's that's great. And so let's shift the conversation maybe onto um, onto Luca and happiness. And look, I, Mike is such a gentleman; he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't talk about his own book as to how great it is. So that's my job. And so Mike's <laughs> book is phenomenal, and uh, it's a great journey around the world. And it talks about happiness in different cultures, how similar are we as people, wh- why are we different, and, and there are. There's lots in the book, lots of beautiful tips and tricks and, and commentary and some case studies. And there are the six main themes that are in there that really I think you've boiled down happiness to, which is, which is great. And the, one of the first ones that you touch on is, is togetherness, that, that sense of how important it is to have human contact. And so I wonder if you could just talk to me a little bit more about that first part of the book in terms of togetherness. Yeah, so I've used, you mentioned the six factors, Chris, and, and, and those six factors are derived from the data that's derived from the, from the science. So when we look at the World Happiness Report, we can see there are six factors that explain the majority of the difference in happiness levels among people. Uh, so what I've done is I've traveled and looked for people and places and companies and cities and countries that are doing something right within those six factors. From a scientific point of view, the, the case stories are not interesting because case story is a data point of one. one. But my job is, I mean, 
you can see that the data shapes the science, but the story spreads the science. So I try to find people who embody what we see in the data and what we see in the evidence, because that's how we get people to remember the points that we are seeing in the data. So the, I think the combination of data and anecdotes are, are really strong. But togetherness always comes up in the happiness data, whether you look globally, nationally, or locally. Having somebody in our lives we can rely on in times of need is perhaps the best predictor of whether people are happy or not. Do we feel loved? Do we feel we belong with somebody? Is there somebody who gets us? Is there somebody who hears us, who sees us, who understands us? If I can't ask people directly how happy they are, I would explore how satisfied they are with their relationships because that gives me a pretty good indicator of where they are in terms of happiness. It's not the only factor, there's a lot of other factors, but it seems to be one of the best predictors. So one of the people I, uh, I bring up in, in, in Lugge is uh, an Australian woman called Shani. She lives in, in Perth or just outside Perth in a sort of ordinary town, ordinary neighborhood, uh, which used to be an ordinary street. But Shani has basically taken this street and turned it into a really, really strong community. Uh, so they have uh, movie nights. So they have like an outdoor movie screen they bring out once a week. They have pizza nights. They've created a common pizza oven they, they make pizza in, I think, once a week. They have afternoon tea. They have a skateboard ramp. They, have, they even have a goat that goes across several... A goat? Long, a goat. Oh, that's yes. good. I think every street should have a goat. Every street should have a goat. Um, but, and it's this really, really tight-knit community of neighbors that have been turned into friends. And what Shani did was, was essentially, I think, two things. First, she started to get to know her neighbors. So she went around knocking on people's doors, which as a semi-introvert as I am, might be sort of uh, overwhelming. But nevertheless, she did it because she wanted to create a street directory. Uh, so names and address, or addresses, that's a given on the street, but, but phone numbers and, and contact information. She also asked what were people's interests and what could they give and what did they need. <clears throat> and there was a kid, he said, oh, I'd love to babysit people's uh, cats. And there was another guy who said, oh, if people need to move heavy stuff, I have a wheelbarrow they can borrow. There was one guy who said, I need people to help me eat mulberries, <laughs> uh, because in the mulberry season he had too many. That's too many. And then she noticed there were three ladies on the street who all enjoyed singing. And there was also an ex-choir mistress. So they formed the Holbert Street Choir. And that was sort of the first step. But the other thing I think she did really well was she got people to dream about what kind of street would we like to have. She said to people, imagine, you know, don't worry about the budget, don't worry about who is going to do what, but what would you like to see happen in your street? And I think dreams are a really, really powerful motivator to get people activated. There's a great quote by, you speak French, so help me out here, but the guy who wrote uh, The Little Prince. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm 42% uh, I'm, I'm according to Duolingo in French, so I'm not going to attempt <laughs> it. Uh, but but, but he, he wrote somewhere that if you want people to build a ship, don't drum them up and assign them tasks and work. Instead, get them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And I think that's what Shani did. She got people to imagine what kind of street would we like to have, and that really mobilized the street. That's one of the inspiring people I've met in, in my travels. Well, that's a great story. And I think you know, this concept of togetherness and spending time with people, you know, it must be pretty hard these days because there's so many pressures that we all perceive we have or we actually have in terms of our work, 
the family commitments and social media, how that could deem to detract away from creating these moments of togetherness. So does the data or the way you've looked at, at, at the other things that pull on our time, uh, because freedom is another thing in the book, but what's your view on how to manage all those other constraints, or these perceived constraints? It is super challenging. If, if we take the, the smartphones and the whole sort of digital or the technology aspect I think there are a lot of great things to say about social media. It connects people with each other across generations, across distances. I use it quite a bit when, when, when I'm abroad. I, I can connect with my dad. and It's it, uh, many benefits. But we can also see there are some negative benefits because it does distract us. Mm-hmm. It does disconnect us with people that we are actually with. And we, we actually ran an experiment, a small experiment, I think two or three years ago at the Happiness Research Institute, where we looked at the effect of social media on a lot of different indicators of quality of life. And we had 1,100 people sign up for the experiment and ran happiness uh, surveys on them and then randomized them into two groups, one control group, which continued to do what they used to do, and then one treatment group who took a week off from social media. And then we ran our studies on them afterwards. And and basically on every indicator of quality of life, we saw an improvement in terms of better concentration, in terms of more satisfaction with their relationships, in terms of less envy, in terms of also uh, life satisfaction. I'm sure all those people are back on social media today because it also gives us a little bit of fix, right? And I think Life is a endless stream of choices between pleasure here and now and benefits long term, which we sometimes fail to, to make right decisions. But I think it's then interesting to see, because it's a new technology, right? And we, we're still in our infancy in trying to figure out how do we use our smartphone devices and, and the digital technology in, in a perhaps better way. I think it's interesting to see how organizations are trying to tackle this challenge. And one case also in the book is a Danish boarding school which have introduced, you could call it a regime. No phones. But it's no phones. So at the beginning of the semester, when the students arrive, all the phones, all the iPads, all the technological devices are confiscated. And I then just, I just want to pause here. So yeah. for the kids in the room, that yeah. is, yeah, I can we see, take yeah. away your yeah. phones and iPads. Yeah. This is a horror story. Yeah, look, this yeah. is... This, this is <laughs> it ends well, I promise. So they can have them one hour per day. And they could go on Snapchat and Instagram and, and, and what else. I'm sure there are newer things that I'm not aware of. But then after six months, it's put to a test among the students. Should we continue with the system or should everybody get their phone back? And 80% of the students vote to keep the system in place. Because the experience when none of us have our phone, we actually create a community and relationships with the people we are with. So I'm not saying throughout the phones, but I'm just saying, could we create you know, phone-free Fridays where all... The families in the street say, no, today we're actually playing outside like we used to do when, when yeah. you and I grew up. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's interesting to see. Also, companies introducing quiet Tuesday mornings where you have three hours of uninterrupted time, no meetings asking for, or no managers asking for status reports, no meetings, no mails taking in, no, no calls. But you have three hours of uninterrupted time to work on some of the more complicated tasks that needs a long stretch of time to be done. Instead of trying to fit in, I'm sure it's like this at your work as well, you know, 20 minutes there, then you have seven minutes on, until the, the call, and then you have half an hour, and some of the work you have to do is really complicated and needs a significant period of time. So I think some of these tools are interesting to look at. We'll come on and talk about Denmark in a second, but I just, you, know, you just said something at the beginning of that uh, conversation, which was really meaningful, I think. You, you know, life is a consistent battle between a series of short-term choices for immediate 
pleasure versus building decisions for for happiness over time. That, that was really that was really meaningful to me. So let's just take a digression for a minute to talk about Denmark. And as I said in the beginning, is everybody in Denmark happy all the time? You know, are, do people have bad days in Denmark? Um, you know, this perception around the Scandinavian model and, and why people are happy and Something in your book that I thought was quite, quite interesting, right at the beginning you, you write that you know, in Denmark we're not paying taxes. We are purchasing a way of life and a quality of life. So it would be interesting if we just explore that for a second. Yeah. This, yeah. Those people who haven't gone to Denmark, is everybody <clears throat> biking, biking around, permanently smiling, or how, how, does, that, how does that work? <laughs> Especially, I have to smile, otherwise I get fired. Well, exactly, right. yeah, yeah, that's exactly uh, right. The reason why we say that Denmark is one of the happiest countries in, in the world is due to the rankings like the UN World Happiness Report, like the European Social Survey, OECD Better Life Index, that looks at often life satisfaction, which is one dimension of happiness, collects data from a large group of people, and then calculate a national average. So these are averages that are being presented in the happiness rankings. So yes, you could say that Denmark is the happiest country in the world. You could also say Denmark is the least unhappy country in the world. Of course, you have people on both sides of uh, the average. Like in Japan, they have, I think, the longest life expectancy in the world with 84 years. Doesn't mean that all Japanese live to see 84 years. So you have people that are happier and, and less happy. But it has created this sort of myth of Scandinavian happiness. Also in my latest book, I, I joke a little bit about it. And I talk about Copenhagen and how everything is wonderful. And then I write, uh, but not everything is wonderful. There was one time five years ago when the train was five minutes late. <laughs> uh, but the passengers got a letter of apology from the prime minister and a designer, chairs, a designer chair of their choice. That was a joke. But, but, <laughs> but people believed it. There was a journalist from, I think it was the New York Times, who wrote me, was this true? And I wrote her back, no, of course it's not true. Our trains are never late. <laughs> 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 so, of course, there's a lot of challenges in Denmark as well. In every country have challenges. But I think what Denmark and the Nordic countries are good at is... I think, they've, I think they've created a society that puts quality of life at the core of what it's trying to be achieved in terms of policies, in terms of urban design, in terms of how we design our workplaces, in terms of how we design our schools, what the children are taught, and so on. And, and on top of that, you've got a big difference in terms of how equality is perceived in the tax structure right. and how we look at our fellow citizens right. versus other countries. Maybe we can just explore that. Yeah, first. so also again, especially American journalists will say, how can you be so happy in the Nordic countries you pay so high taxes? And I like to say maybe we are happy because we are paying high taxes. So I pay 50% of my income in tax. But like, so there, was, so there was a few yeah, drawing in a breath now, now, there now on the, the horror story for the parents, right? So first we took the phones, then we got the tax. Okay. <laughs> Everybody's happy. We want them to stay. We want them to stay. Lock Mike. the doors. Okay. Yeah, lock, lock the doors. doors. Yeah. You're not allowed out. Okay, you're staying. <laughs> but interestingly enough, nine out of ten Danes will say they're happily paying their taxes, and it's due to the fact that people recognize and experience that they get a lot of quality of life in return. Of course. The foundation is good governance, that there is a low level of corruption or non-existent corruption, that the money you pay into the taxation is fed back to people in terms of quality of life. Because of the taxation system, yes, there's a high level of equality, meaning that you will have a relatively high level of quality of life, whether you are rich or poor. 
And I think, yes, obviously that improved quality of life for the poor, but I think it also improves quality of life for the rich because there's less to be concerned of. There's less worry, there's less stress, there's less social anxiety, there's less competition. There's no parents lying awake at night worrying about whether they can afford sending their kids to college like you would see in the US. There's nobody worrying about healthcare insurance. So I think what the Nordic countries do well is that they remove the price tag there is on happiness. Of course, money matters also in the Nordic countries, but it matters less. And I think having a society where you can enjoy life, where you can experience happiness and joy and have a good life, whether you go in one direction or other, uh, makes you focus less on what you're going to make in a job and less on some of the other aspects that, for instance, jobs uh, include. Well, we, so we touched on togetherness. That's one of the first uh, themes. And you just mentioned uh, money. And uh, so the second big area that, you know, you think about money, does it buy you happiness? And I just want to read from, from or maybe ask you to, I, I, can, I can do it or ask you to take some water. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we have this uh, section around money and I have to quote from it because I'll get it wrong otherwise. So, uh, you, you write in here, like, like most things, the more we have of something, the less happiness we derive from it. The first slice of cake, awesome. The fifth slice of cake, not so good, right? So you're saying in here that economists call this the law of diminishing marginal utility. That's a bit heavy for a Saturday, for a Friday. Um, but that basically implies money can only buy you so much. Right, yes. So obviously money matters because being without money is a cause of unhappiness. If you don't have money, there's no food on the table, there's no roof over our head. But there is, you know, the more you have of something, including money, the less pleasure we derive from it. So first thousand euros for any family matters greatly on a global scale. If you're already making a million euros per year, additional 1,000 euros, what are you going to spend the money on? You can spend it on, I don't know, Serenity Dog Pots, which is this Luxury. On what? Yeah, so uh, there is a thing in, in, the, uh, in the Sky Mall magazine that I'm sure some of you have enjoyed reading on your, your travels. You can buy something called a Serenity Dog Pot, which costs $1,000 and has this soothing light for your dog and music. And they have a picture of the dog in the Serenity Dog Pot. It doesn't look very happy. <laughs> uh, but you can buy it for $1,000, and that's what you buy when you already have a million euros in your income and get an additional 1000 So I think that's also why you know, redistribution of wealth is an obvious choice, because let's move some of those resources to where they will bring the most benefit. Yeah, so t towards the end of the book, you actually talk about kindness and the importance of giving and how you can derive pleasure and happiness from, from kindness and actually what's important for you versus what's important to to give to others. And, and I think actually we live in a part of the world in, and we talk about giving and happiness and uh, maybe let's just talk a little bit about that. I, there, was, there was something that I liked around a Chinese proverb that, that said that if you, you can be happy for a certain amount of time, but if you want to get ultimate happiness, it's about giving back, yeah. uh, essentially. Yeah, and a lot of different cultures have that. Uh, I think also the Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. And I think you know, there, there's a short-term benefit and there's a long-term benefit from, from being kind. And the short-term benefit is that we are wired to feel good by doing good. So we can see something we call helpers high. When people help other people, it triggers the reward center in the brain. So in the center of our brain, we have a small, the size of a, a hazelnut, place called nucleus accumbens, which is the reward center, which is triggered when we do things that are good for the survival of our species. So when we eat sugar and fat, it triggers because it's good for the survival of our species. But it also triggers when we help each other out. 
because that's also good for the survival of the species. So there's a boost in well-being short when we are helping each other out. You can also see people, if you see somebody helping a tourist out on the street with finding the way, the local will actually smile more from that interaction than the tourist because we, we like to help other people actually. The long-term benefit is in many, in, in many senses, a, a greater sense of gratitude. If you are involved in charity work, you're often exposed to how other people live. It's also a good way to start new friendships so people are more uh, satisfied with their relationships. But I think perhaps best told with uh, the story of Clark, uh, who I also mentioned in the book, who's this uh, young man who lives in uh, London. And Clark, it's not his real name because he's actually the closest thing to a superhero as you can get. His real identity is a secret and he is known as the free help guy. So he helps people for free. So he started out I think five years ago. He was, he was working in London, he was working in marketing and every day going to uh, Oxford Street Circus with thousands of others commuting to work and just feeling tired, disillusioned. Is this, is, is this it? There is to life. And he wanted to sort of find a way to make life worth living and earn his worth in more than pounds and pennies. So he decided to quit and then he gave himself six months to the project. And this was a few years ago, so, so the first week he, he binged watched Breaking Bad for one week. But then for some reason he wrote on an online forum, is there anybody I can help? I'll do it for free. The free help guy. And the first people who wrote him, I think they were called Jill and Richard. They were a couple that had previously had a homeless person living with them. So they had a spare room and had offered this to a homeless person. And now he got back on his feet and found a job and moved on. So Jill and Richard asked Clark, can you find us somebody else to help? And that became the first step of a long series of events where Clark has, he sat next to a guy on planes to help him get over his fear of flying. He has tried to find a donor for a young girl who needed a bone marrow transfer. He has tried to reunite a father with his son. And he's done all these amazing things. Uh, but he says, the person who have been helped the most by this project is me. Remember him saying, my heart beats in, an, in a way that it never has before. And he now made this project uh, permanent, so it's something he wants to do for the rest of his life. And I think that's a really powerful story in understanding how focusing on somebody else and, and trying to help them out can have a positive impact on, on how we feel about our own lives. That's, that's, uh, that's amazing. Let's, so let's, let's just touch on the, on the science in a second, but just so you, you're oriented, you guys. So we've talked a little bit about togetherness and money. We're not going to have time to talk about all aspects of the book, but we'll maybe come on and talk about health in a second. But let's take a little segue into the science side oh. of things, because... Um, these are great nuggets and stories all throughout the book, and it's a, it's a wonderful read. Um, but as you said at the beginning, these are just examples that bring to life the, the, the quantum of all the research. So all the statistics and all the data, these <coughs> give examples that back up the, the science. Um, and you talk a little bit about what, what makes people happy generally, uh, affective versus cognitive states, and there's a depth of research that you do in your day job at the, uh, the Happiness Research Institute. So maybe let's just talk a little bit about the science, right? right. The, the research component here. Yeah. So basically, a, a third of my job is trying to understand how we can measure something as intangible as happiness or well-being or quality of life. Um, we, we use uh, different concepts. And it's tricky. But I think we, we overestimate how difficult it is compared to other subject phenomena. We could say the same thing about depression or stress or anxiety. Those are also very subjective. Those are also about how we as individuals experience the world. 
and our situation in it. I don't see any evidence of why it should be more difficult to study positive emotions than negative emotions. And I think it is our obligations as scientists to provide some evidence to give us the best possible conditions on which to make good decisions for policies, for our countries, for our cities, for our lives. But yes, it is tricky. And yes, happiness is a wide term. So what we do is we break it down and look at the different components like you would do with other complex phenomena. Now, Chris, you mentioned earlier it's going to rain later this afternoon. That's one component in how is the weather in Dubai today. Another component is the wind. Another component is the temperature. Those three dimensions give us an idea of how is the weather going to be. We also try to do the same thing with happiness. We look at different dimensions of well-being that are linked but are not completely overlapping. Uh, so you mentioned the cognitive dimension. That's a dimension where people assess sort of an overall life satisfaction. So imagining the best possible life they could live, the worst possible life they could live, where do they feel they stand right now? It's a very stable measure. People answer the same to that question today as they did two weeks ago. We can then also see how are people feeling on a daily basis? What kind of emotions, both positive and negative emotions, do people experience here and now or yesterday afternoon? And that's quite volatile. In the weekends, people report higher than when they show up for work in the beginning of the working week. We can also see, for example, last year in the UK, the unhappiest day in the UK was November 9th, when Europe woke up and Donald Trump was president. <laughs> and it, of course, those two dimensions are linked. If you, have a, if you have a lot of every days with a lot of positive emotions, you probably also report higher levels of life satisfaction. But they're not completely overlapping because you can have lousy mornings and still feel good about your life overall. But then ideally what we do is we, we follow large groups of people over time to understand how changes in life circumstances impact your different levels of life satisfaction. So. We could follow you and 10,000 people here in, in Dubai over the next decade. Then a lot of things are going to happen. You know, some people get promoted, some people get fired, some people get married, some people have kids. Some of the kids, we take their phones. <laughs> and then we see how does those changes in their life circumstances impact how they feel about their lives. That's what I'm interested in. And then it doesn't matter so much that we might have different perceptions of what the good life is and we might use the scale in different ways. You might be comfortable with using zero and 10 and I might be conservative and say, oh, it's only between four and six. But it's the changes I'm interested in. So I think that's really powerful to understand the science behind this, that over a period of time, you've got those benchmarks and that data to describe those movements. And so, look, we've talked a little bit about togetherness. We've talked a bit about money and kindness. We're not going to have a lot of time to talk about trust or freedom, but one other area in the book is about health. So let's just talk about health for a second and, and about biking to work. Right. So not only in Denmark is everybody happy permanently, they're paying high taxes, they don't have any telephones, um, but they're all biking to work with a smile on their face. Is that, is that, is that fair to say? <laughs> I'm not sure about the smile on the face. Well, but, I, but, yeah, but, uh, but, but yeah, the majority of people in Copenhagen, like myself, are cycling to work. Businessmen do it, students doing, members of parliament cycle to work. The majority of, of people are members of parliament, they cycle to work. And yes, it has great benefits in terms of fitness, in terms of sustainability, in terms of less congestion on the streets, in terms of more urban room for green spaces, in terms of parking. It has a lot of great benefits. That's not why we do it. 
We don't do it because it keeps us fit. We don't do it because it's good for the planet. We just do it because it's fast and it's easy, okay? We'll take the side benefits, but we do it because it's the fastest and easiest and most convenient way to get around. And we do that because there's been a lot of investment in infrastructure for pedestrians and cyclists. And I think that's worth to keep in mind that we shape our cities and then they shape us. The way we build our cities affect our behavior in them. So that's why I'm frustrated when, when for example, I was visiting uh, Kuala Lumpur a couple of years ago and a lot of money is going into infrastructure for cars. So you're building cities for cars. I was trying to walk uh, to the botanical gardens, which was a couple of hundred meters from my hotel, and I gave up because there was no sidewalk. So basically you have a government funded campaign telling people if you don't own a car, you are a second-rate citizen. And then more people will buy cars, then you'll get more traffic, more congestion, more pollution, and so on. I like streets where, or I like cities where pedestrians and cyclists are treated like kings and queens on the road. And I think that's what works well in Copenhagen. It also removes the price tag there is on mobility. If I lost everything I own, I could still get around the same way I get around today. And that, I think, creates nicer cities. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really powerful. One final question, I guess, uh, from, from me or, or point to discuss. You said at the beginning, you, know, every, you, can't, you have to smile because you'll get in trouble if you, <laughs> if you don't because you're expected to as the CEO of the <laughs> Happiness Institute. But just what was it like going to work every day talking about, uh, thinking about happiness? To me, I mean, it's, I love this field. I think it's super interesting. It's super rewarding to work with. Now, we, we had a conversation this morning. We're going to have conversations this afternoon. And this field is something that everybody can talk about. Everybody has a perspective, everybody has an opinion, everybody has experience in terms of what I'm trying to understand. So suddenly every conversation I have, every book I read, every city I visit, every movie I see, is a little piece of evidence in a puzzle I'm trying to solve. So suddenly everything gets this extra dimension which is really rewarding. And I think trying to understand these things is super interesting. And we have a lot of knowledge, we have a lot of, of, of findings, but there's still a lot of blank spots on the map. There's still a lot of things that needs to be discovered yet. And I think that also makes it a lot of fun that we're part of that journey in, in scientific discovery. To comment on the first part, I have really lousy mornings <laughs> and really lousy days. I know these days there's a lot of pressure to be happy and look happy on Instagram and all that. I, I try and make a point of the fact that I'm not happy every time. I think we as happiness researchers have an obligation to bring that point forward and say in a normal life comes misery and stress and worry and anxiety and envy and heartbreak and failure. That's the package called life. And, and it's not something you know, that we should bypass. We can't do that. We should just acknowledge that there are good days and there are bad days, and there's good periods and there's bad periods. I think our obligation, both as scientists, but also a personal obligation, is to try and understand how can we create best possible conditions for our societies, but also for our personal lives, for us to flourish. It's not to delete negative emotions, but it's, it's for us to try and be as happy as we can be with the situation we have. I did have a question here in the, in the front row. Um, you talked a little bit about the science, and I just wanted to know, as part of your research, did you find that there's a genetic disposition to a certain level of happiness? So are some people just born happier than others, less happy even if they live in a country like Denmark? You know, is, are we born with a quota, regardless of external factors? Right, I understand yeah. This? There is a genetic component, and I think, I think it's useful to look at happiness the way we look at health. In terms of longevity, there is basically three categories. You're born more or less healthy, 
right? You're predisposed for some diseases. Then the country you live in or the city you live in also impact your health or your longevity, the quality of the health service, the level of air pollution, the infrastructure. Do you move around during the day or do you sit still? And then the choices you make. What kind of diet do you have? Do you exercise? I think those three categories applies to happiness as well. The choices you make, what you spend your time doing, impact your happiness. The country you're born in also impact the level of happiness. But yes, there is a genetic component as well. So in the US, at the University of Minnesota, they have a twin register that is really comprehensive, which includes data from a period in the US where it was allowed for a set of twins to be adopted by one or two different families. And in those situations, with identical twins, then you have, which is is a scientific goal, because you have identical genetic material that are brought up under different circumstances. And they looked at at happiness levels in these twin couples, and they can see non-identical twins, so where there's not identical genetic material, there are no correlation in their happiness levels. So one twin happy, one twin unhappy. But with the identical twins, where there is identical genetic material, uh, they have fairly similar happiness levels. So there is a genetic component, but there are also a genetic component when it comes to mental illness, you know, depression, schizophrenia. So there would be also for for happiness. Of course, an ideal study, because the twins are still brought up in the same country, right? They're still brought up in the U.S. So you need to control for that. So you would need to have one twin grow up in the U.S., one in Denmark, one in France, one in Germany, one in UAE. But the government say, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, but, that but that's what you would need to, <laughs> to do. But there is a, a genetic component. You might not be allowed to do that. You've already taken away phones and uh, done some <laughs> other things. I'm not sure we can. Right, hands up uh, nice and high. We've got the lady here, please. And then let's get some more hands up ready for the next question. So we'll have this gentleman next. Nice and Hi. close. Um, they say don't judge a book by its cover. Your covers are fantastic. They instill a sense of Huga and Luca within me. Um, I just wanted to know, what was it, who did you collaborate with for the book covers? If you can speak about the birds, and what was your brief to the person who created these book covers? I've never had that question before. <laughs> well done. So we actually worked with a Scottish design agency. They did both Huga and, and Luca, and I agree with you. I think the illustrations and the design of the book are absolutely beautiful. And I think that's also why they've been embraced uh, by a lot of people. I think they're just nice to look at. I think they embody especially what what Hugi is. And I think there's also a lot of communication in the the visual assets of the books. Also, you know, in the the U.S. edition of Hugi, the publisher, for some reason, chose to take out the pictures, which I think was... Not the best decision. Strange, yeah. Because I, I think there's a lot of atmosphere created from the, from the pictures. So, so I think they're a really important part of the books. The instructions were basically come to Copenhagen for, for Hugo. And we met in a cafe first, me and the designers. And, and we talked about elements and we looked at colors. We looked at how, how big a component is lighting in a room, how much the candles take up in, in the way we design cafes and houses and so on. So we, we got them to Copenhagen uh, and then experienced you know, what, what, we, uh, what we see. Um, so, yeah. Great question, and well done on pronouncing Huga and Luca. <laughs> Ten points. So we're going to have this gentleman here, and then we're going to go to this lady in the third row. Uh, I looked at uh, the ranking of the happiest countries. Um, most of the countries in the top are quite uh, civilized and uh, well-off countries. But then on the list is a lot of uh, poor countries uh, from uh, Central America and, and Africa. Uh, what do you think will happen with their happiness factor as the country develops? 
will it go down before it comes up again or they go straight to the top? So the Latin countries? Yeah, Latin yeah, countries. yeah. So you're right. I mean, the top 10 in the World Happiness Report is typically the Nordic countries and Canada, Australia, New Zealand. But you're right. The Latin American countries, when you look at the socioeconomic indicators, their wealth levels, good governance and so on, they're doing better than we would expect them to do. And it's actually something the happiness researchers call the Latin American happiness puzzle. And it's something they bring with them. So when we look at migrants in the U.S. from Latin America, they are also reporting higher levels of Americans with the same socioeconomic levels. So it might be something with their family structure, the widening family structure compared to sort of Western structure. I think those countries, Latin American countries, what they do well is also they, they're relatively good at getting a lot of bang for their buck in terms of wealth to well-being. It's interesting to see, is it Costa Rica or Nicaragua, which have cut entirely the spending for the military and channeled that money into the education sector. That country is one of the countries that have increased the most from the first World Happiness Report to the latest. So I think, I mean, they have a good starting point. They are accelerating some of them. So they, they can be in the top 10 for sure in, uh, in, in the years to come, I would say. Very good. So this lady here. Uh, what inspired you to write about Hoka and Loga? And what was like a turning point in your life that caused you to focus on the, these topics? So for the past five years, I've just tried to understand these questions. I'm asking the same questions that you are now and, and we had earlier today. So I'm, I think I'm just curious by nature. And I've looked a lot at the Nordic countries, trying to understand why they do well. And a lot of it has to do with the welfare state. But I needed an explanation to understand why it is that Denmark do better than Sweden, Finland, Norway, Iceland. Why is it that Denmark just do a little bit better than the other? So I started to look at culture and saw what was uniquely Danish in our way of life. And that's where, where Hugo came up. Lugge is happiness, so that's sort of core of my work. So the interest came from there. there. But to rewind even, even further, the reason why I started the Happiness Research Institute five or six years ago was an interest in these fields. I was working for another think tank with sustainability. But they noticed how much was happening with happiness research and happiness and politics. Uh, so in 2011-12, the United Nations, they passed a happiness resolution. They started to publish the World Happiness Report. Different governments in the UK, famously Bhutan, they, they were measuring well-being as the way they measure progress. And I just thought somebody in Denmark should try and pool all this knowledge and understand these things. And then I thought, maybe I should do that. And, then, and we're glad that you did. So am I. But it, it's, it's also been tough. I mean, I started out with what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop in, in a sort of backyard in Copenhagen with, with rats. Uh, and it's also been tough financially. And uh, I think the first three years after I set up the Institute, I've, I've never worked so hard, earned so little, but had so much fun at the same time. And now it's going, it's going well, and, and with 10 people, we're still a small organization, but it's, it's, it's going well. But I think it's great to find something where you know, even if I was not making money on this, I would still love to continue doing what I do. I think that's really powerful in terms of having a sense of purpose and meaning in life, that I know that this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my career. I think that, that brings tremendous amount of, of value. Good. <laughs> you know, so this lady just here, and then the gentleman uh, in the middle on the fifth row at the back, please. Hi. The issue of happiness has become political. A lot of governments have adopted it. So I'm curious to know whether the nations that have the 
the energy, the time, the resources to focus on such an important issue that affects all humans in every facet of life. Is there any work, any thinking in the direction of helping people that are less fortunate, perhaps like the people that are struggling to get from Africa to places of safety? Is there any thinking to help those other people um, that's happening in, in your meetings when you come to Dubai or anything like that? That's Great really question. Great where, question. Where are we moving yeah. Thank you. politically with happiness? Yes, yeah, so you're right. There is a lot of things happening politically. There's a lot of things happening scientifically. I think what we're seeing now, both in science and the politics, is an increasing focus on not only the average happiness levels, but the inequalities of happiness. Uh, so usually we've talked about inequality in terms of money, in terms of wealth. We've talked about the Gini uh, coefficient for the past 100 years. We see uh, a big trend in inequalities in well-being in the coming years for happiness research. So a few years ago, the World Happiness Report for the first time included not only the happiness average for countries, but also the distribution. So how big is the inequality of well-being in a country? Also, I can't re reveal it, but on, uh, I can't reveal the content, but I think you will find the new World Happiness Report really interesting, which is coming out on, let's see, March 13th. There's an, a new ranking, but there's an additional ranking in the new World Happiness Report that is going to be really interesting in, in terms of that question without revealing uh, the content of it. But you're right, those countries, those are at the bottom five in the World Happiness Report for good reasons. And uh, I think that's also why it's important when we hear statements like happiness is the choice to say, well, it's third, uh, the choice, right? It's third, the behavior we have and the choices we make on a daily basis. It's a third, the genetics, and it's a third, the circumstances under which we are born. The environment. Right? That's really interesting. Those three thirds, right? Yeah. So a third yeah. choice, a third, you know, that you're born and a third, how your environment. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman at the back, who's the mic? This gentleman here. So, me being still in school, I was just wondering, are there any key elements of schooling or education that really allow Luca or Huga to show in the education regime? Great question. So, yeah, and I think the education system has a big impact also on well-being later in life. And what we see is well-being at a young age obviously predicts also to some extent well-being later in life. But happiness at a young age also predicts income levels later in life. So we can see, yes, people are making more money, are on average happier, but the reverse causation might also be true, that people that are happy are more inclined to make money later in life. We can see that from the British Household Panel Study, where they follow people over long stretches of time. Kids who reported high levels of happiness when they're 16 went to report higher levels of income uh, in their 30s when we controlled or when they, the scientists controlled for, for other factors. So well-being at a young age, tremendously important. And I like education systems that focus on not only academic skills. Yes, math is important. Yes, English is important. And Danish. I mean, it's a great language. <laughs> uh, you, you, you got a head start with Hugo and Lüge. So yes, the academic is important, but so are the social skills. And so is the comprehensive 
development of a child, the emotional skills, the social skills. I like education systems that looks at a wide spectrum of skills uh, to be uh, developed. We have time for one more question, so we're going to go to somebody. I'll choose anybody. And, and there's a great section in the book that talks about tiger moms and being pushed academically versus creating the right environment to be happy. So let's take this gentleman here. Yes, I'm just wondering whether Denmark has a, a minister of happiness like the UAE. I wish we did. I mean, I'm trying to push it. We have conversations with a lot of political parties in, in Denmark around these fields. We are yet to establish a, a, a ministry of happiness. I compliment the, the UAE for their ambition in this field. I think every country should have a minister of state for happiness and set goals. I think that is the central element that a country should care about how to improve quality of life for their people. I think that's the common currency across all ministries. I think that's what policies are about uh, to improve quality of life.